Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with The Fall Guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall Guy. Fall Guy. Fall Guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Coming to you from Classic City, the capital of the Bulldog Nation, it's time for another edition of the podcast designed for the most die-hard Georgia fans in the country. What's up, guys? Welcome back to another edition of the Glory UGA Podcast. I'm your host, Tyler, and... I'm here. I'm here, guys. I didn't think I'd be able to make it here in order to get this show out on time today. I told you guys last week that with me heading to Austin over the long weekend to run a marathon, I didn't know if I'd be able to get back in time to actually put something together and get it recorded and get it out to you guys. I thought maybe it'd be like Tuesday afternoon, the earliest Tuesday evening, push everything back a day this week. But... Hey, the adrenaline, it's still flowing. The endorphins are still doing at least enough to where I'm not completely laid up right now. At least not yet. Don't want to speak too soon. So yeah, I was able to put a little something together for you guys. I was sitting there in the airport in Austin on the plane trying to put something together for you guys. I've been working on this for a little while, but kind of just put the finishing touches on it. And yeah, here I am ready to go. And I'm throwing a little curveball at you guys today. Pun Now that I just caught myself saying that pun absolutely not intended, forgive me for that. I did not mean to throw that out there like that, but we are going to talk some Georgia baseball on the podcast today. You don't really find much Georgia baseball talk content out there. I guess you can follow a little bit on online, on Twitter, on social media, but it's hard to find any kind of like hardcore Georgia baseball coverage. And I know a lot of you guys are big into baseball. Obviously, we know the Braves just won the World Series, so baseball in the state of Georgia, the interest in that sport is maybe at an all-time high. I guess maybe go back to the late 90s, maybe it was a little higher then, but it's back to that point after winning the World Series, and college baseball as a sport just continues to grow and grow and grow more and more each and every season in popularity, and I think we've got a chance to be a pretty good team this year, so today we're going to do that. We're going to take a break from our regularly scheduled programming, which is generally all football talk, and we're going to talk some some baseball today. So we did basketball a couple weeks ago, do baseball today. I want to do tennis talk. I've been wanting to do some tennis talk here for a couple of weeks, but I'm waiting to get Charlie back in here to do that because that is her specialty, and I don't want to do that without her. I just feel weird to talk tennis without her on, without her on the podcast because that's what she knows more about than, than maybe anyone that I know that follows Georgia tennis. So we'll get her on here to do that hopefully within the next week or so. But we're going to talk some baseball today. And look, I, I'm still going to call this a season preview, even though, yes, I understand the season technically already kicked off over this past weekend with the dogs pulling out the brooms to sweep Albany. But I mean, it's close enough, right? 
Hey, let's let's just say this. Let, let's say it's a Georgia baseball season preview-ish and call it even. Fair? Close enough. And I'll get to that in just a second. We'll run through this entire team. But first, so I was in Austin over the weekend, currently still Big 12 country, but soon to be an SEC college town. Still feels, feels weird to say that, but yeah, I mean, eventually, soon enough to be an SEC college town. So with that in mind, I thought I'd give you my very brief take on the town. Quick little review here. I'm sure a lot of you have been through Austin before, and you've probably been to it more than I have. This is my first time to Austin. But um, I wanted to share my thoughts here. I had a couple questions about it on social media. thought, why not? Just talk about it real quickly here at the start of the show. And normally, I kind of hate to do this, because normally it's Charlie's domain to rag on every single college town that she goes to other than Athens. She's basically trademarked that at this point. But... I'm going to have to channel my inner Charlie here and say, honestly, if you want my 100% honest truth, I wasn't all that impressed with Austin. I mean, let's say this. Austin's a very good town. I'm not saying Austin's garbage or anything like that. It's not Auburn, Alabama. not saying that. It's a very good town. I I would even call it a cool town. Yes, absolutely. And I imagine it would be probably really awesome for a college football weekend. I, I certainly grant them that. I'm sure it is. And maybe this is, I mean, probably is. It's probably just a case of like my expectations being too high, like that kind of thing. But I just wasn't overwhelmed with Austin. Like there were a couple good areas with, with, with bars and restaurants. There's a part of 6th Street that had some cool bars and restaurants. Rainy Street was like, if you're looking to have a good time and go out and party and have fun at bars, like Rainy Street seemed to be the place to be. And I thought that was really cool. But it was almost like too crowded. Like it was insane. Like I'll, say this, I'll say that about Athens. Like, we have so many bars and restaurants in Athens, downtown Athens. Yes, we do. We have a ton. But I never feel like any one of them is like so insanely, like overwhelmingly packed that you like can't feel yourself breathe. And that's kind of what every bar on Rainy Street felt like. And some people love it. That's fantastic. That's just like, I like having a good time. Don't get me wrong. I really do. But I don't know. That's like when it's just that insane. I don't know if like, that's necessarily my vibe. So yeah, it's, it's more of a personal preference thing. I'm sure some people go to Austin and say, like, it's the greatest college town ever. Honestly, it kind of felt like, like I like Nashville. You know, if you've heard Charlie talk about it, Nashville's not her thing. She hates Nashville. I think Nashville's a fun town to go to for like a couple of days. But I will say like Nashville does not feel like a college town. And I would kind of say that about Austin. It didn't feel like a college town. I, I like that that kind of unique charm you get from an authentic college town. And I, I didn't feel that from Austin. Now, again, granted, I was there for two days, no football game going on. There was a huge basketball game going on. Texas Tech was coming back in. They beat Chris Beard for the second time. You know, if you guys watch college basketball, all Chris Beard, coach of Texas Tech, took him to the Final Four, then he left and came to his alma mater, Texas, this year. And so, obviously, Texas Tech fans are are still very much up in arms about that and probably will be forever. And they already beat them in Lubbock. They came to Austin and beat them Saturday. So there was something going on, but it just didn't have that vibe. But look, Austin is a capital city. I, I, I understand that. So it's it's unique in that. Like I guess you could say Columbia, South Carolina is a, is a capital city. But I would say Columbia, even though it doesn't have like that, like maybe Athens-like college vibe, it still has way more of a college vibe town feel to it than Austin. And of course, Austin's bigger. Granted, all that's true. And Austin's grown a lot with tech companies moving in there. I mean, I think the second most populous capital city in the country now behind Phoenix. So it just didn't have that feel. And there's nothing necessarily wrong with that. Austin, again, if, if I lived there, I'd probably enjoy living there. But 
when I'm going there kind of looking for a college feel, I just didn't get that feel to it. You can still go there, have a great time. I had a lot of fun. It was it was a great trip. It was nice to see a different part of the country, see something I hadn't seen before. That's why I wanted to run the marathon there. I try to do those in different cities every year, but it probably wouldn't be on my top five list of college towns that I've been to, to be entirely honest with you. But still, it was fun. Like Again, I go back to Rainy Street. If you've been there, you know what I'm talking about. If you like to party, that's the place to go. Charlie, God bless her soul, would have dropped dead the second she turned onto that street because people were actually having fun and that's not necessarily a Charlie thing. She would have died if she saw what was going on on that street, what she probably would have called shenanigans going on on Rainy Street. And uh, I went down there twice. It was it was fun. I went down there Saturday night just to like check it out. And that wasn't as much fun because I couldn't like partake in the fun because I had to run a race, a marathon the next morning. But I went down there again on Sunday after the race, probably around four o'clock. And it was the same atmosphere. People going crazy, losing their minds, jam-packed, everything. And I know it was a long weekend with President's Day weekend, but Still, on a Sunday at 4 o'clock, I mean, it was just insane. So that's fun if you're into that. And I, I could like that to a degree, but it was almost like too much going on. As for the food, the food was good. Barbecue was good. A lot of food trucks. that They're really big into that in Austin. Like most of those bars actually have food trucks attached to them, and it's kind of hit or miss. The food's good in most of those food trucks, at least the ones that I was able to try. But the line can be very long and sometimes like I, I got I was waiting in li- waited in line for this one place and I get up there and he's like yeah it'd be about an hour and a half and I was like well couldn't you just put a sign up that said hey it's an hour and a half long wait for food so that was annoying so it's things like that but also it's very walkable I did enjoy that super hilly um that was not awesome running that marathon but all in all it was a great weekend uh, I did hit a PR by nearly 10 minutes even though it was the hilliest toughest marathon course I've run yet I'm still not any good. I'm not a good marathoner at all, but I have fun doing it. It's fun to kind of just compete against yourself, to set a goal and go out and accomplish that when you're old like me at this point in my life and you grew up being very competitive, playing sports year round, and now you can't do that. It's fun to have something in your life like that that can kind of give you a semblance of that feeling. And you, I mean, I know all you guys listening to what I'm talking about. So that's why I enjoy it. Had a good time. I'm never going to win a marathon. I'm never going to win my age group. I've come to terms with that. I understand that. But it's still fun to set a goal, go out there, work for it, compete, and see if you can hit it. And when you do, it feels good. So that's what I was doing over the weekend. Austin, good town, fun town, just not maybe as great as I thought it would be. But okay, enough of that. Let's go ahead and do what I told you guys we came here to do today, and that's talk some Georgia baseball. And I guess the logical place to start is let's just pick up where we left off last year to remind you guys the shape this program is in coming into the 2022 college baseball season. Last year wasn't a vintage season for us. 31-25 wasn't a disaster. It was a winning season. We you know, we're on the cusp of getting into the NCAA tournament, but we did miss out again going 31 and 25. We only won three SEC series on the year, went 13 and 17 overall in conference. And there were a couple of close calls that could have gone away against some really good teams, but we just couldn't close the deal. We we blew more than a few leads late in in SEC play, which obviously did not help our case, but we kind of just missed out getting into the NCAA tournament. But that was coming on the heels of a three-year run under Scott Strickland, where we went 39 and 21 back in 2018, hosted a regional, uh, a regional where we lost to Duke. And I was sitting there in the right field bleachers, just being baked alive by the sun. I remember that vividly. I don't know if I've ever been hotter in my entire life. The sun felt like it was directly zeroing in right on my face the entire game. That was a lot of fun. 
actually for both games against Duke. So had a great season there. It's kind of when we started to get things on track under Scott Strickland. It was a money year for him. He had to have that year, and he responded in a big way, but we did not make it out of the regional, did not get to a super regional. We followed up in 2019 with an even better regular season, 46-17, and 17, top 10 at points throughout the, the college baseball season, but again, could not get out of the region. We were host the, hosted the regional again. We're not able to get out of it. Lost to Florida State. Didn't go super well once we got in the postseason. And then in 2020, a, a year that I felt like maybe we had a chance to have Scott Strickland's best team to date, obviously that was cut short by by COVID. With the pandemic, we were 14-4 and four heading into SEC play. We, I think it reached as high as number two in the country in the non-conference slate heading into SEC play. But of course, we were unable to find out how that journey would have ended. And so those three seasons, 2018, 2019, the pandemic-shortened 2020 season, they got our program back on the winning track. I mean, getting to the postseason in 2018 was the first time we'd made the postseason since 2011 after making it seven out of 10 seasons prior to that, including four College World Series appearances and a heartbreaking runner-up finish in that span. So we've gotten this program back on track. And last year was a slight step backwards. But if you had looked at the players that we had lost and what we had coming back and some of the youth on the roster, it wasn't entirely unexpected. I went into last year thinking we had a chance to make a regional. I did not think we would be as good as we were in 2018, 2019, or 2020. But, I mean, all in all, you look at it, 31-25, coming off 39-21, it was at least a slight step back. And as has been the case essentially every year under Scott Strickland, our team last year was led by pitching. But the problem was, last season, the pitching wasn't as dominant as it had been the three prior years. And on top of that, our offense, our hitting, was slightly worse than it even had been under Scott Strickland. That's been the bugaboo under Strickland. We have not been able to put together a potent offense, a consistently potent offense. Like maybe back in 2018, like it's the closest we've had to that since we've kind of gotten back on the winning track, but that's kind of been the bugaboo. We've had really, really good starting pitching, some good pitching out of the bullpen at times, but we just haven't been able to put together that powerhouse offense, and that's something that's got to change here at some point if we're going to take the next step and actually make it to a College World Series. And I have some numbers here to back that up for you guys. I want to throw some stats your way to give you a better feel for what I'm talking about, saying that our starting pitching was good last year, but not as good as it had been, and our offense continues to be an issue with this program. So you go back to 2019, from a pitching staff standpoint, our team ERA was 3.24, opponent batting average against was only 200. You go to 2020, I know this was a pandemic-shortened season, but 2.52 ERA, a 206 opponent batting average against, and then last year, still pitching was still good, but in 2021, the ERA jumped to 3.91 as a team. Opponent batting average jumped to 226. And then on the flip side, if you look at our offensive numbers, go back to 2019, we finished seventh in the SEC with a 272 batting average, fifth in the league with a 435 slugging percentage, 374 on base percentage, and we're seventh in the league in runs. 2020, again, pandemic shortened season. We were ninth in the SEC in that shortened season with a 277 batting average. We were 10th in the league with a 418 slugging percentage, eighth in the league with a 394 on base percentage, and again, seventh in runs. And then last year, ninth in the SEC with a 270 batting average, 13th in the league with a 413 slugging percentage, 
12th in the league with a 346 on base percentage and then 12th in the SEC last season in run score. So you can clearly see the trend here, guys, under Scott Strickland. We've been really, really good with our starting pitching. We've been very, very average when it comes to our offensive production. And I'll come back to that, but I'm going back to 2020 real quick. It's a real shame that that season did get canceled because of the, the pandemic. Obviously, a lot of things got canceled. There are bigger issues. Of course, we know that. But you know, lost in the shuffle of all that was our 2020 college baseball campaign. Now, you can't guarantee that that team was going to be a college world series team. Like I've heard people say that, like, man, like that team was going to the college world series. Well, yeah, maybe they had a good chance, but we don't know that for sure. You can't guarantee that, but I, I will allow that it absolutely looked like a potential college world series team. But then again, so did the 2018 team, especially the 2019 team. And they both got run out in regionals that we hosted here in Athens. But you know, you look at 2020 and we had a hell of a one-two punch, as good of a one-two punch as anyone had in the country at the top of our, our starting rotation with Emerson Hancock and Cole Wilcox. It's really a shame that we only got Cole Wilcox for a year and a half. We had him as a freshman then half of his sophomore year, but I guess not even really half of his sophomore year because he's a guy who came in and he was 19, so he was able to actually turn pro in two years. So a very tough look there for the team in general and only getting a year and a half with Wilcox. I mean, I wish him the absolute best when he goes out there, makes a lot of money for himself, a great career for himself in the major leagues. But just tough luck with that season getting canceled because it did have the potential to be a college World Series type team for us in 2020. But back to last year, the pitching again was just, it was good. We, we had good starting pitching for, well, when people were healthy. But we just weren't, again, as good with our starting pitching as we had been going back the previous three years. And at times, we just had most of the season, actually, especially in SEC play, we kind of had to piece together a staff due to numerous injuries with yet another average as grits Georgia baseball offense. And what really, actually, the the issues with our pitching staff started before the season even, even began. John Cannon was slated to come into the season as our ace, our, our Friday night starter, but he came down with a case of mono right before the season started. Now he came back and he ended up making 12 starts on the year, but those first four starts were on, he was on pitch counts and he was, and it took him a while to get back to what he, what we expected him to be coming this season. I'm not even sure he actually got there at all at any point last year. I mean, mono, if you guys are familiar with that at all, I mean, it takes a lot out of you, but it was Ryan Webb who's a guy who had spent some time in the bullpen, spent some time in the starting lineup or the starting rotation, gone back and forth there, really been more of a bullpen guy than anything throughout his career. But he was the guy that came on early in the season, had a killer breaking ball. He had a fantastic curveball. And he was he was the Friday night guy. He was the star that kind of stepped in where John Cannon kind of left off. But he got sidelined with elbow injuries and got shut down for the vast majority of the season after getting off to a hot start. Then C.J. Smith got hurt. He was a guy that was going to factor in, be a part of our starting rotation. He got hurt, missed the majority of the year. And then so that left us with guys like Liam Sullivan, who was a freshman, Luke Wagner, Jaden Woods. All three of those guys were freshmen. And they had to come in. Liam Sullivan late in the season became a starter. I think he had four starts uh, by the time the season was over. Jaden Woods got a couple starts. Luke Wagner had like 12 starts in the year. So when you take all that in consideration, it's actually pretty miraculous that our starting pitching and those numbers held up as well as they did. Again, I, I know we took a drop last season in our ERA numbers, our opponent batting average numbers, and most other metrics out there. But the fact that we were able to still more or less hold it together from a starting pitching standpoint, despite all those injuries, all the unfortunate developments with our starting staff, 
I think it was pretty impressive and it's a testament to what Sean Kinney, our pitching coach, brings to this staff and to this program. But the silver lining to last year's team, even though it did not go the way we wanted it to, even though we did not make the NCAA tournament, the silver lining was the youth of last year's team. At times, guys, we had three true freshmen in the lineup with Corey Collins, which he was primarily DH, also kind of a backup catcher, got a couple starts at catcher. I think he had like eight starts last year as a catcher. Fernando Gonzalez was our starting catcher from basically day one, and he was also a true freshman. And then Parks Harbor is a guy who started some games early in the season. His playing time started to get cut late in the season. He kind of got into a late season slump. And then we had three freshman pitchers that all got starting experience at different points during the year. I mentioned Luke Wagner earlier in the year. He got 12 starts. Liam Sullivan started out of the bullpen, but as the season wore on, the injuries piled up. He ended up getting four starts. In fact, his debut as a starter came against number one Arkansas. He pitched six innings of one run baseball, 11 strikeouts in that game. So he showed against the best competition in the country that he has what it takes to be a frontline starter for us at some point down the road. And then Jaden Woods, also a freshman, had four starts, worked a lot of the bullpen for us, worked some, some long innings out of the bullpen for us. And then back to the, the young bats, both Corey Collins and Parks Harbor, they both had moments where you'd watch them play, you'd watch at bats, and you'd say, all right, these guys are going to be really good. Collins was far more consistent. He was a mainstay in the lineup in the four, anywhere between three, four, and five hole most of the season. He, again, he was the DH. He ended up hitting 283 on the year, eight home runs. He was over 300 for the vast majority of the year. He went on a little bit of a late season slump as well, which happens when you're a freshman in the SEC, starting pitchers and coaches start to figure out a little bit. You got to make adjustments. They adjust to you. He ends up at 283, eight home runs, also led the team in RBIs and doubles. He's a power hitter. Parks Harbor has the ability to also be a power hitter. He had 29 starts, most of those early in the season, but he ended up with a 248 average and only three home runs. Again, he had a late season slump that was that was tough for him to dig out of as a true freshman. And then Fernando Gonzalez, as I mentioned, was our starting catcher basically from the jump. He ended up hitting 254 with two home runs on the year. So he's not a, a big time power hitter, not a big time offensive threat, but he's a good enough guy to go out there and get you some hits in some key situations. And he plays a really, really good defensive catcher. So even though last year did not go the way we wanted to, a big part of that was because we had so much youth. And while that did hurt us last year, we had to kind of take our lumps with all those guys being young. It should pay dividends moving forward into this 2022 season. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. 
Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-Ads.com. So let's go there. Let's move into projections for this year's team. And this is actually where, oddly enough, being a week or so late with this preview actually helps make the show a little bit better because we have a better idea now with this series under our belts of exactly who our starting pitcher is going to be, what the bullpen is going to look like, what's the starting lineup going to look like. We have a much better idea because we have three games to actually operate off of. So actually, what I'm telling you is I'm a genius. And this is how all season previews should be done. But no, in, in reality, I just had to head out of town and couldn't get this episode to you guys before the season actually started. But, you know, I think it might actually work out because, again, we have some actual information to operate off of. But let's start with the starting pitching here, right? Because this has been the strength of Scott Strickland's best teams. Go back to 2018, 2019, 2020. This has been how we've kind of gotten our program back on track. Elite starting pitching. Whether it was Chase Atkins back in 2018, then Emerson Hancock and Tony Losey, a hell of a one-two punch in 2019. In 2020, it was going to be Emerson Hancock. Ryan Webb was in a factor in that as well. We had Cole Wilcox. Like We've just had awesome frontline starting pitching. Usually, more than one guy that carries us through a weekend. If you have, I mean, if you have one stud, like a Friday starter in college baseball, you're in really good shape. If you got two of them, like when we had Tony Losey and Emerson Hancock, we had Emerson Hancock and Cole Wilcox, you are in really, really good shape. That's when you have the makings of a College World Series team. And that's kind of my concern about this team. I don't know if we have two guys like that that are ready to be an Emerson Hancock and Tony Losey, or an Emerson Hancock and a Cole Wilcox. Maybe. The, the potential is there. I just need to see it. The guy I feel best about being one of those type of pitchers is John Cannon. Now, even before this past weekend's opening series against Albany, I mean, I could have told you the same thing if we'd done this episode last Thursday. It's been a foregone conclusion that John Cannon was going to be our Friday starter. And he was slated to be that guy coming in last year, got mono and got pushed back, and he was able to come back late, but was never quite fully himself. But it looks like John Cannon is ready to be that guy. Now, I don't know how much you want to draw off of one game against Albany, but in his first start, first game of the season, he went six scoreless innings of two-hit baseball. That's what John Cannon can bring to the table. He's a big guy, power pitcher, 6'6", right-hand pitcher. He's a junior now. He's, as long as he can stay healthy, knock on wood, he's going to be our Friday starter all season long. I feel really good about Cannon. Where I'm a little concerned would be our Saturday and Sunday starts. And it's not because I don't think those guys can do it. It's because I just haven't seen it. There's an unknown there. Liam Sullivan started the season this past weekend, our opening series since Albany, as our Saturday starter. He got first crack at that job. And it didn't go particularly well for him. You give it four runs and two innings pitch, but that, you know, that one start's not going to be enough, I don't think, to just knock him out of that spot entirely. He'll get a couple more opportunities. But he's another big starting pitcher like John Cannon, 6'6", 245. He's a big dude. He's a lefty. And he's got good stuff, guys. He's another power pitcher. He can bring it. I like what Liam Sullivan brings to the table. I was I watched that game last year in Arkansas. I was very, very impressed. His debut as a starting pitcher as a freshman in the SEC against the number one team in the country. He goes out there and pitches six innings of one-run baseball. That's big-time stuff, and I think that's something you can build off of, and I expect him to continue to get better and better and better. I just haven't seen it consistently enough for him to sit here and say, yeah, I think Liam Sullivan is going to be that Saturday starter all year long where he can be the the Robin to John Cannon's Batman, like Tony Losey was to Emerson Hancock, or like 
Cole Wilcox was to Emerson Hancock. I, I don't know if I can say that yet. I hope that I can say that in a couple of weeks. I just don't know if I can say it yet. So there's a little bit of concern there. And then the third guy right now, at least opening weekend, and this is who I expected to be coming into opening weekend and it turned out that way, is actually a transfer. A guy named Dylan Ross from Eastern Kentucky. Technically, he went to Eastern Kentucky as a freshman. He was at a JUCO last year. And now here he is in Athens. And he's another big, hard thrower. 6'5", 245. Again, another guy is kind of a power pitcher. And he pitched well against Albany on Sunday. Five innings of one-run baseball. But that's how the starting pitching, at least for now, to open the season, is going to line up. Now, if those guys continue to pitch at a high level and can stay healthy, then that should be the starting rotation all year long. Now, midweek starter, that's a, that is a very big question right now. I have no idea who our midweek starter is going to be. If I had to guess, I'd say a couple guys are going to get opportunities early in the season. I think Luke Wagner, who I mentioned earlier, had 12 starts last year. He's certainly going to be a factor there. Luke Wagner's an interesting player. He's a two-way guy. He'll play out there in the field. He'll he'll get some at-bats as a pinch hitter, but he's just a good athlete. He he pitched quite a bit for us last year. He has the most experience of these guys that are going to be vying to be the midweek starter. He had a 4.58 ERA last year as a true freshman. I think he's got pretty good stuff. Do I think he's going to be like an elite pitcher for us at some point in his career? I probably don't think that, but he's a good, solid, experienced arm for us that can really help us in midweek situations. I think Jaden Woods is a guy that can get an opportunity as a midweek starter. He's got a killer breaking ball. Maybe the best pitch of any pitcher that we have on the team is his breaking ball. He was second team freshman All-America last year. He could be a midweek starter. I think he'll get a look at some point during the season as a midweek starter, but I think he'll probably end up more as like a back-end bullpen guy. I think he's, he's a guy that can give you multiple innings as a long reliever if you need him to. Uh, also, as maybe like a seventh, eighth inning kind of setup guy, I think he can be that for us. But he'll factor in one way or another. There's no doubt about that. Another name to think about here is a guy named Garrett Brown. He's coming back from Tommy John surgery. And he was a part of the midweek rotation back in 2020. David Rokos is a guy that transferred in from Mississippi State. I think he'll get a look. He'll be he'll be a guy that's going to factor in in some way, shape, or form. Maybe even Charlie Goldstein, who got a start in the SEC tournament last year. I don't see him as a high-level guy. I think some of the options are better than Goldstein, but he could factor into it. But the name to really watch here, in my opinion, maybe the the X factor here is a guy named Coleman Willis. We were really lucky to get this guy on campus. I did not think that he would ever step foot on the Georgia campus as a college athlete. I thought he was destined to go pro. He's a big six foot seven pitcher, another big pitcher. This guy out of Houston County is a righty. He was All-American as a senior. He was a Georgia Player of the Year. Baseball America, I think, has him like inside the top 120 right now for next year's draft. Obviously, he won't be able to go pro because once you come into college, you have to be here for three years. Or if you're 19, when you start, you can be here for two years. I think once you turn 21, you can go ahead and go of it, even if that's before three years. But we should consider ourselves very, very fortunate to get him on campus here, at least for the next two or three years. And I think he's going to have a chance to be a really, really good pitcher for us. I haven't seen him pitch, but everything you hear is that this guy is is a stud. He's going to be awesome. So even though he's a freshman, you have to imagine like he might get a look here at some point as a midweek starter. And if that goes well and someone falters in the starting rotation, maybe he starts to work his way in the starting you know weekend rotation, whether it's a Saturday or Sunday starter. I don't think he would ever really unseat John Cannon this year, but if Liam Sullivan doesn't get things on track, if Dylan Ross you know starts to lose a little bit, I think he could potentially be sitting there waiting his turn to get a chance in the starting rotation if things go well for him as a midweek starter. But if I had to put money on it, I guess my first inclination would say that 
Luke Wagner will get the first look as a midweek starter based off his experience from last year. And then we'll work some other guys in there as the season goes on to see who that best option ultimately ends up being. The bullpen is going to be a work in progress. I think we have some good options in the bullpen, but we're losing Ben Harris, who was a really good closer for us last year. He's been a good player for us for quite a few years. He's gone. So we're going to have to find somebody to replace him in the back end. I don't know who that guy is going to be. Will Childers is a guy that I'm very intrigued by. He's another guy that missed all of last year with a Tommy John injury. But prior to the injury, I thought he had the stuff. I thought he had the makings to maybe end up being a closer by the time his career was said and done. So I'm interested to see where he is in his recovery. I really don't know. I don't have any inside information there. But just watching him in a small sample size, I think he has that kind of stuff. He can be that kind of guy. But we just have to see how he's come back from his injury. Nolan Chris was a guy that we actually brought in from Florida. It was a transfer from Florida that we brought in last year. And he had been a, a closer for Florida prior to him coming to Athens, but he really struggled at times last year. And we tried to use him in that role. It didn't work out so well. So then he kind of became like a middle reliever for us as the season wore on. And I just don't see him being that guy for us based off how things went last year. Maybe he gets it back. I don't know. But based off what I saw from him last year, he just doesn't really do it for me as a, a closer option. He'll still be a major factor in the bullpen, but I just don't see him being the closer. So I don't know that that's the that's a big question we have to answer. Is Jack Gowan gonna be a guy that gets a chance today? He's I mean, I think he led us in bullpen appearances last year. And so he's gonna definitely be a, a big factor in our bullpen again this year. Will it be as a closer? I don't know. I just don't know who that guy's gonna be. That is a concern for me. Now I do like our options in long relief. Will Pearson's a guy from North County High School. I actually know Will very well. For those of you who do not know, Will is the son of Philip Pearson, who was an assistant coach here under Mark Fox until Mark Fox's staff got the boot. And Will is now a part of our baseball program. He's never really going to be a starting pitcher, but he's a very valuable piece for us out of the bullpen. He's a long relief kind of guy, and he pitched a lot of very, very big innings for us last year and was able to tide us over and save some of the other arms And you know, when some of the starters got run early in the game. I think he's going to fill that role again this year. Michael Polk's another guy who who pitched quite a few innings last year out of the bullpen. He'll be another factor as well. So we've got a lot of arms. And I didn't even mention Jaden Woods. I talked about him earlier. Jaden Woods is going to be our best pitcher out of the bullpen. I just don't know what role he's going to play. If I had to predict right now, he could end up being a closer. He could get a look as a closer. I wouldn't be shocked at that. I think his value becomes more as like a seventh, eighth inning guy to kind of bridge you from your starter to your closer. If you, especially on a Friday night, let's say, you know, John Cannon goes seven innings in a game, goes six innings in a game. You got Jaden Woods come in, goes seventh, eighth inning, and you get your, your closer coming there in the ninth inning and game over, right? Like that's the ideal scenario. I think that's probably where he fits the most, but he also come in as, as a closer this year. I, I just don't know who that guy is going to be. And again, that's one of the concerns I have out of our bullpen. And that was an issue for us at times last year. There were multiple games in the SEC last year, guys, that we had late leads and the bullpen could not hold it. And that's something that we've got to fix. Now, a lot of those arms were young last year. And you also throw in guys like Coleman Willis, even if he doesn't get a, a starting pitcher job at some point this year. At the very least, he's going to be in the bullpen for us. Maybe he becomes closer. I don't know. But like he's a very talented guy. And he's going to be a factor for our, for our pitching staff in some way, shape, or form. Another guy, as I mentioned, Mississippi State, David Rokos. He's got some experience in the SEC. I think he's going to be a valuable piece for us in the bullpen as well. So we've got arms. We just got to see how it's all going to shake out as the season progresses. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. 
Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Okay, let's go ahead and move into the offensive side of things. And as I said earlier, guys, this has been the issue for us. We've been okay as an offensive baseball team, just not good enough, not elite, not as good as the other teams in the SEC that are not only making regionals and hosting regionals, but winning those regionals and getting the super regionals and then winning those super regionals and making college world series appearances. This is the area that we most have to improve. This has been the issue for us. And I'm going to start this conversation by looking at the positions that I feel most confident in, in terms of like, I know who's going to be the starter, the everyday starter, week in and week out, game in and game out. And let's just start with shortstop. Guys, Cole Tate is going to be our starting shortstop every single game this season, barring injury. He took over for Cam Shepard last season and played really, really well in that role. He actually took his his offense to another level last year. He hit 319 last year. And he hadn't been that guy really at any point in his career. So his brother, his twin brother, Connor, who was the guy that had more of the reputation as the offensive threat. But Cole hit 319 last year. I mean, yeah, only had two home runs. He's still not a power hitter, but he was a good contact hitter. And he actually gave us much more than what Shepard was able to give us offensively in his first year as a starter. And I expect him to do much the same thing this year. Cole's twin brother, Connor, he played right field primarily for us last year. He's moved over so far this season in the first series to left field. Last year, he hit 344. He led the team with 10 home runs, 33 RBIs. He's almost certainly the most consistent hitter that we have returning from last year's team. I would maybe throw him and Josh McAllister into that conversation. But Connor was really, really good for us. And guys, the Tate brothers, I mean, more Coney County prospects here. Actually, they're from Oconee County, not North Oconee like Will Pearson was. But Oconee County products, I, I feel like they've been here for 19 years. I think this is year 19 for the Tate brothers. But regardless, I'm very excited they're back for another year because both of them are very, very good baseball players. And if we make a run to a College World Series this year, or even back to the NCAA tournament, these guys will be a big part of the reason why. Catcher is going to be Fernando Gonzalez. He's going to be the guy, just like he was last year as a true freshman, basically from the jump from day one. He'll get a breather here and there from Corey Collins, who's going to be our primary DH. He's a big power hitter for us, probably the best power hitter we have on the team in terms of his long-term potential. And he'll get maybe a, a spot start at catcher here and there, maybe maybe once a weekend. I could see something like that happening just to give Fernando a little bit of rest. But Corey, just like last year, will be our primary designated hitter. He hit 283 last year, eight home runs, 370 RBIs, led the team in RBIs. He's a big physical guy that has big time power potential out of North Gwinnett High School in the Suwannee area. And he, he's a guy that hit over 300 most of last season. Again, I think I said this earlier, went into a little bit of a late season slump and dropped under 300. But he was a really good hitter for us in the SEC for most of last season as a true freshman. I expect him to make a pretty big jump here in year two. 
And then the other position where I know for a fact who the guy is going to be is center field. It's going to be Ben Anderson. He's a guy, he's a trans, he transferred from Furman a couple years back. Start off his career really hot here in Athens as a hitter. He actually hit 414 in that pandemic shortened 2020 season. But last year, man, he, he really came back down to earth. He came crashing back down to earth. He only hit 206 on the season last year. Only had a 326 on base percentage. And for a guy who was slated to be your leadoff hitter, that's simply not good enough. You got to get on base more than that. And as the season wore on, we had to drop in the lineup. Because again, he just was not getting on base enough. And we had to move the lineup around. But Ben Anderson is a better hitter than that. He's a better player than that. He's shown that throughout his career. He got off to a good start. His first at-bat of the season against Albany on Friday was a home run. So hopefully he's going back to closer what he was in 2020 than what he was last year. I think the answer is he's probably somewhere in the middle, but he has the potential to be a 300-level-ish hitter in the SEC. We should get him some confidence back and him back on track, and hopefully he's able to do that this year. But he plays a great center field. He's going to be the everyday center fielder barring injury. Now, first base third base, and second base are all kind of a jumble right now. Garrett Blaylock is a guy that transferred in from Vanderbilt a couple years back, and he was penciled to be the starter each of the last two seasons, in 2020 and 2021. The problem with Garrett Blaylock is the dude struggles to make contact with the baseball. Now, when he does, he can hit the ball 5,000 miles. Nine home runs last year, 29 RBIs, has big-time power but he strikes out far too much. That was honestly a problem for both him and Corey Collins last year. I mentioned Corey Collins, big time power hitter, but he struck out 58 times last year in 191 at-bats. That's more than a fourth of the time that he had an at-bat, he's striking out. One out more than one out of every four at-bats was a strikeout for Corey Collins. But you can kind of forgive that maybe a little bit more than Blaylock because Corey Collins was a true freshman last year that was kind of thrust into a prominent role for us hitting into the 3-4-5 hole throughout the entire season as a true freshman. Whereas Garrett Blaylock, the guy had 152 at-bats last year, struck out 45. That guy's been around the block three, four years now. And that's just not as forgivable for him because he can't just sit there and say, oh, he's young, he'll get better. And that's just kind of who Garrett Blaylock is. And I thought still, despite that, because he does have that power, that he would still be a guy that would, at the very least, be in some sort of rotation at third base. But he did not get a start at all in the first week, in the opening weekend against Albany. He got a, a pinch hit at bat, I believe, but did not start at third base in any of those three games. Parks Harbor got a start at third base. Josh McAllister actually got the first start at third base. But then that's kind of strange. So Josh McAllister played second base for us last year before getting hurt. But now he's playing third base for us. He got the start on opening day at third base, got injured in that game, did not play in game two, but came back in game three, got the start at third base. And in game two is Parks Harbor, who actually started game one at first base, who got the start at third base, where he played some last year as a true freshman. But Blaylock did not play third base. And, and that was at least to me, a pretty stark indication of where he is in the pecking order right now in terms of getting a starting job back. So it looks like if everyone stays healthy, that Josh McAllister, who again was our second baseman last year when he was healthy, is going to play third base this year. Parks Harbor, who played a lot of third base for us last year as a true freshman, is going to play first base. He did play some first base last year. Cheney Rogers, who played primarily first base for us last year, 
is now playing right field. He seems to be the guy that's going to be our everyday right fielder. Garrett Spikes actually did get a start in right field in game two when Corey Collins played behind the plate in place of Fernando Gonzalez. And what we did there is we used a highly touted freshman Cole Wagner as our DH. So there still seems to be some moving pieces in what this lineup's going to be. But you know, if you go back to game one, Opening day, I think that's who, clearly, that's who our coaching staff projects to be our starting lineup when you get into SEC play. So let's go around the diamond again. You got first base, you got Parks Harbor. You got, I didn't even mention second base. You actually got a transfer from Florida, a guy named Corey Acton, who started every game of opening weekend at second base. He had about 250 last year for the Gators, but has a reputation as being a very good defensive second base, which is something that we certainly need there. So it looks like He's going to be the second baseman. You've got Cole Tate playing shortstop. Looks like it's going to be Josh McAllister, who is a big-time bat for us at third base. I mentioned that Connor Tate was our most consistent hitter last year, but I would put Josh McAllister, when he was healthy, right up there with Tate. I mean, Tate hit 344, McAllister hit 333. McAllister did deal with a couple of injuries, had about 35 fewer at-bats than Tate did, but still only hit one fewer home run. Tate hit 10, McAllister hit 9, hit some moon shots too. Uh, Tate had 33 RBIs, McAllister had 29. So you can make a strong argument that maybe it was actually McAllister and not Tate who was the better hitter on last year's team, but that's certainly the top two hitters from last year's team, and they're both back. They both can hit for average. They can hit for power. They drive runners in. And McAllister was hitting in the seven hole on opening day. And if you have a guy of that kind of caliber with that kind of bat hitting in your seven hole, maybe our offense can take the kind of jump it needs to. Because the way it shook out, Ben Anderson is back leading off where ideally he needs to be because he has that kind of speed, that kind of athleticism. And if he can just start putting the ball in play more consistently and, and just hit for a little bit of a higher average, actually a much higher average than 206, he can be that leadoff guy that we need him to be. Corey Acton was hitting the two-hole Parks Harbor, was back up in the three-hole after that late-season slump last year. We had Connor Tate as the cleanup guy, Corey Collins coming at number five, Cole Tate hitting six, McAllister seven, Chaney Rogers in the eight-hole, and that's a really another really good player, another good hitter to have hitting number eight in your lineup. I mean, this guy hit almost 280 for us last year, had four homers, 32 RBIs. He's a good hitter, and have him hitting number eight, I like what that says about the potential of this lineup. And then closing things out in the nine spot is catcher Fernando Gonzalez. And of course, that's subject to change as things are apt to do based off how guys are performing. But at least to open the season, that's what our coaches see as our best lineup. And the one thing I will say about that lineup is I don't know if we have a guy anywhere up and down that lineup that I just went through that you can sit there and say, all right, that guy's an automatic out. Or a guy that is an overwhelming weakness. The kind of guy, you guys know what I'm talking about, the guy that comes up to bat, let's say it's the bottom of the ninth, two outs, tying or go-ahead run on second base, and this guy walks up to the plate, and you just shake your head and go, oh, God, game over. We got no chance. I don't think we have that guy in the lineup. I really don't right now. And we've always had at least one or two of those kind of guys in the lineup under Scott Strick in the past three or four years. And I just don't know if we have that kind of guy. Now, do we have guys that are better hitters than others? Of course we do. Any lineup does. But any of those guys, if it's a scenario I just kind of laid out where you late inning game, down by a run, tie game, whatever, running a scoring position, two outs, and you need a hit, I don't know if there's 
any single guy where I'm like, he has no chance to make that happen. I think all of them have that potential. So I think it's a really deep lineup, and I think it has a chance. And honestly, I expect it to be the most productive offense that Scott Strickland's had in the past three or four years. And I think that's a very good thing for this program. We need that. But sorry, guys, I kind of sidetracked myself there for a minute going through the lineup. I was trying to make my way through the the positions throughout the field, but sorry, guys, I'm tired. I'm, I'm still worn out from the marathon. My mind's not working like it should be working right now. So I apologize for that, but let me finish it up. So Parks Harbor at first base, Corey Acton at second base, Cole Tate at shortstop, Josh McAllister at third base. That's where I got sidetracked. Let's go to the outfield. We've got Connor Tate moving over from right field to left field this year. Ben Anderson holding on to his traditional spot there at center field. And then we've got Chaney Rogers who got the first look in right field opening weekend. So there you have it, guys. There is my Georgia baseball 2022 season preview-ish. I am actually really excited for the start of college baseball season. I think we have a chance to be pretty good this year. I think we can make it back to the postseason. I think we have a chance to host a regional. Now we got to get out of a regional, but I think we have a chance to get there. We still need to find some answers in the starting rotation outside of John Cannon, but I think the potential is there. I think we have some guys with really high upsides. We just got to continue to develop them and get them going with some confidence as we go through the non-conference slate and enter SEC play. And I, as I just laid out, I'm very excited about what this offense can be. I do believe it's going to end up being the most productive Georgia offense that Scott Strickland has had. But we're going to cover it all season long, guys. I know some of you are very into college baseball. Some of you are not as into college baseball. But it's certainly growing as a sport, and it's huge in the SEC, and we want to make sure to cover it here on the show, just like we're going to cover college tennis throughout the spring as well. Again, we should get Charlie in here for that. I just feel wrong doing that without her, and I think she'd be very upset with me if I did. So I certainly do not want to upset the star of the podcast, so we'll wait for her to get in here for tennis talk. But that's coming, guys. I guarantee you that's coming. And we'll, again, we'll have this baseball team covered for you all throughout the spring and summer. But before I get out of here, guys, speaking of other Georgia athletic programs outside of the football program, one of our longtime listeners actually has a son that is on the Georgia lacrosse team. I believe it's a club team, but still, I mean, I go to the, the Georgia hockey matches. It's a club team here at the Classic Center in Athens, and that's a lot of fun. So the lacrosse team has home games against Clemson at 6.30 p.m. on Friday, 2.25. So that's this Friday and Bama also on Saturday, 2.26 at 3 p.m., at the Georgia Club Sports Complex. So yeah, that answers my question. It is a club sports team. And that's over on South Millage. It's 2435 South Millage if you want to get out there and make it. I mean, Clemson, Alabama, those are rivals. Those are big games. And lacrosse is another sport that's really growing in popularity. You might have some kids that play lacrosse. Maybe you're into lacrosse yourself. So if you're interested, looking for something to do this weekend, make it out to the Georgia Club Sports Complex here in Athens. Again, that's 2435 South Millage. And they're do, they're playing really well right now. Apparently, they just finished up a road trip to Colorado and Florida. Currently 4-2 right now with wins against number 8 Colorado and number 13 Florida State. So let's show those guys some love. They wear the G just like anyone else does on the football team, the baseball team, the basketball team, tennis team, whatever. They wear that G. So when they rep it like that, let's go out there and show them some support. But all right, I think that's it for me. Curtis will be back with me later this week. We've got some uh, news to discuss. I'm sure a lot of you guys have already seen this. I wanted to wait to get Curtis on here to talk about it with him. Obviously, Matt Luke 
is out as offensive line coach. Looks like he has stepped down voluntarily to spend more time with his family. We've also got a new defensive backs coach. So Curtis and I will cover all that stuff for you later on this week. And we also, at least the plan is right now, to get to part two of our 2022 recruiting class deep dive. So a lot of great stuff for you later on this week as well. But you guys know the drill. I'm Tyler. And as always, go dogs. <laughs>